thanks for that. Actually, I was at that um, ACC thing the other night, and Daniel was sitting next to me, introduced me to somebody as a spray painter. I thought, that takes me back. Boy, I've, I've done other things since then, but that's, that's fair. It's, it's not untrue. So, there you go. Um, anyway, that's beside the point. How are we all? Welcome back to church again. How many times have we had to say that the last couple of years? My goodness. It is good to be back, and for you at home, um, thank you for, for tuning in. So I had been preparing this message all through the week. As you might excuse me, I've got a bit of a, had a bit of a flu this week, uh, so I'm a bit croaky. Um, it's just an old-fashioned flu, not the newfangled <laughs> stuff that's getting around. I'm old school that way, so I know it's just so 2019 to have a flu, right? Um, almost forgot what they felt like, so if I'm a bit croaky this morning, that's, that's why. Uh, but I've been preparing this message through the week, and it's, it's in Corinthians, of course, so you just get used to that. Um, and I sort of had a whole sort of context I wanted to put it in and, and all the rest of it. But then I was going, looking at it again yesterday, and, and I was reflecting on it in light of, well, for the three of you who don't know, uh, the fact that Bobby Houston has just been made redundant at Hillsong. Uh, and you know, that sort of, all that news came out yesterday, and what that comes in the back of is, um, is Brian having been stepped down a couple of weeks ago for just a couple of significant indiscretions over the last 10 years or so. And I was just sort of reflecting on that and this particular message, and the two just really dovetailed. It, this isn't a sermon because of what's happened. It was something I was already going to share about, but it just kind of dovetailed the two, uh, the two things. And so I just wanted to say that as a way of um, just trying to, I guess, for you to understand where I'm coming from with this, this isn't me piling on to a tragedy that has just occurred, um, but it does sort of, well, you know, when you have moments like these, they are teaching moments. You know, there is a lesson that can be taken from these kinds of situations. And so I wanted to reflect on that. I don't want this to seem like it's a, a piling on to misery because it's just, it's certainly not that. And unfortunately, I need to say that because there is a tendency in sectors of the church when these kinds of things happen that segments of the church, let's call them the congregation of the self-righteous jerks, think that <laughs> this is the opportunity to pile on and make myself feel better about myself because at least I'm not like that person. And that's going to happen. And unfortunately, now we have social media where that becomes a megaphone for all of that type of self-righteous schadenfreude. And you just, you know what, it's just, it's gross. It's just, it's disgusting. It's not Christian. And if you're doing that, please repent. Because you, you're not being a Christian when, when you do that kind of thing. So this is not that. Uh, however, there is something to be taken from this kind of situation. And situations like this, because unfortunately, we see this happen all the time. You know, just ministers falling away or being stepped down or all these types of things. And so what I wanted to share about, I think, is perhaps the lesson um, that I was already going to talk about, but I guess it sort of ties into that. So anyway, that's where this is coming from, um, and we'll, we'll just sort of get into it. So my message is titled, Pursuing Your Calling or Slash Your Cause. Now, we're talking about cause at the moment, and I, I sort of see the two as the same thing. I think a calling and a cause are one and the same thing. 
If, you're, have a, if you have a cause that's something you're passionate about, if you're passionate about something, it's because God's given you a passion. He's put something in your life that he wants you to pursue. So your calling and your cause, I, I think, are, are synonymous. Now, you may disagree with me, that's fine. You're welcome to be wrong, but I think that they're actually the same thing. And so I'm just gonna go off that as my starting point for this morning for what we're gonna talk about. So we're gonna look at 1 Corinthians 9. And some background to what this chapter is about. So chapter nine sits between chapters eight through 10. So you can see my kindergarten lessons are still play, paying off. They're still paying dividends. So thank you to my kindergarten teacher for that. Um, but the whole section of chapters eight, nine, and 10, it's all sort of one unit within the letter of Corinthians. And it's dealing with really just one specific problem that's going on in the church. So in the ancient world, in every city of the ancient world, what you would find were many, many, many gods, many temples, many shrines, and gods to all, any number of different things related to your life. And so the idea of the gods was that they were the gods who protected that or, or benefited those particular aspects of whatever your day-to-day -day life was. And so if you wanted to have fortune or if you wanted to have you know, good success in those things, then you would worship that God. You would honor that God in an appropriate way. And it wasn't just a, well, I want, I want good luck, so I, I'm gonna worship that God. It was also on the converse that if you don't worship that God, then that God will punish you in that area. So if, if something's going wrong in your life, it's because you've offended that God, and so you need to make amends with that God to get things right again. So the primary way you do this is that once a year, you would have a sacrifice, a festival to the different gods. And it was really like buying an insurance policy. Keep the God happy so that for the next 12 months, we won't have any bad fortune in that particular aspect of whatever. So that all seems pretty straightforward, but what it means is that every single citizen of the city had to turn up. Everyone had to be part of it because if you offended the God, the God didn't just come after you, it came after everyone in the city. They, they did, didn't discriminate. And so it was your social obligation to turn up to the festivals because if you don't, it wasn't just for you, it was for everybody else. And haven't we heard a lot of that sort of message over the last couple of years? And so everyone's expected to turn up. Now the only group who had an exception to this were the Jews. Jews have been living in these cities for centuries by now, and they'd never come to these festivals because that's idolatry. No Jew in their right mind would be caught dead. You, you don't even eat the meat associated with the festivals because it's demonic meat. It's meat sacrificed to an idol. And that's the only time you could ever really buy meat in the ancient world. It's the only time it was ever really available was after a sacrifice. Uh, it was very cheap because we've killed all the cows in the area, and so now we've got to eat it before it all goes bad. So suddenly meat's very readily available, but no Jew in their right mind is gonna eat that because it's been sacrificed to an idol. So that's all good and well, and the Jews always get the exemptions from that. But when someone like Paul turns up, it creates a new problem. Because it's not just Jews that are coming into the church, it's also Gentiles. And the Gentiles, the previous year, had been at the festival. They'd been worshiping these gods their whole life, and now all of a sudden, they're not turning up to the festivals anymore. That's a problem. It's not just that you're causing a problem for your immediate family, you're doing it for the whole city. And so now you're gonna get pressure. Now you're gonna get social pressure 
to return to the festivals because if you don't, we're all going down with you. And so for the Gentiles, there's a tension, there's a choice that they have to make, and what this ultimately leads to is persecution. All of the persecution you hear about in the early church was directly related to this issue because they stopped going to the festivals. And so what we get in Corinth are a sector of the church who are trying to find a way to mitigate, trying to mediate between those two extremes, either never go to the festivals again or maybe go and avoid that social pressure, avoid the ostracization. And so to do that, to justify that, you've got to come up with an argument that justifies going there. And so they come up with things like, well, they're not real gods, and that's true. It's just a piece of meat. It's just food. Food is neither holy or unholy. It's just food. And that's true. And so they're saying this to Paul. Paul, you know as well as we do that this is no big deal. It's just a building. It's just a temple. It's, it's made of stone. That God is literally made of stone. It, it's just a piece of rock. It's not even a real God. We know that there's only one true God and everything else is just a false God. So it's not real. And the food, it's just food. So where's the harm? Now Paul's response is really interesting. He says in chapter eight, you're right. I know that, you know that. It's just, it's just a piece of food, it's just a rock, it's just a temple. He says the problem is not everyone has that knowledge. The problem is there's a whole lot of people in the church who are looking at it going, that's idolatry. But if it's okay for you, then it should be okay for me. So when they start to do it, they're actually doing it in violation of their conscience. They're actually doing it knowing in their minds that it's a sin. You don't think it's sin. They do, but they're doing it anyway. So you've caused your brother or sister to sin. But then he turns it back on them in chapter 10 and he says, but here's the other thing to remember. When you go to those temples, you're still worshiping a demon. There's still a demon that is deceiving the people that go to those festivals. And so if you're gonna go and sit at that table, you are sitting at the table of a demon. You can't go to the, temp to the table of a demon and then go and sit at the table of the Lord and say that they're equivalent. Can't do that. You have to make a choice. If you're gonna choose that, then that you can't do that and Christian, be at the Christian table at the same time. And he says, the other problem is this. You may go there once and you'll be fine. You may go there again and it's still not a big deal. But if you keep going there, you keep putting yourself in that context, you keep putting yourself in that situation, eventually you're gonna get led away. And he uses the example of Israel. They're out in the desert, it's just them and Moses. God's presence is literally there in their midst. Moses takes off for a week and they say, make us a god of cow gods out of gold. And they go and have a festival to the cow gods. Paul says, what happened to those guys? That whole generation died in the desert. You can't mess with this stuff. Yes, it might just be a temple. Yes, it might just be these innocuous things. But what is behind them is something you don't wanna mess with. So here's the safest solution. Just don't go there. Oh, but we have a right to be there. Yeah, you do have a right to be there. You also have the right to refuse that right. 
Ever thought about it that way? And so in chapter nine, Paul gives us this little, cool little snippet of an attitude that he wants the Corinthians to have in response to this situation. Comes at the end of chapter nine, chapter nine, verse 24. And he talks about an attitude that he wants them to have and one that he represents as well. <clears throat> and Paul's really good with his metaphors. He, he uses this metaphor of the athlete. Now, why this was so important for, or so um, um, sentient for the, for the Corinthians was that, well, I mean, everyone in the ancient world knew athletics, like we do today. Everyone knows athletics, we know sport. You may not, you might have your favorite sport, you know, you're into sport, but you know what sport is. You know the value that it has. And there's still a, there's, even if you don't like sport, there's still a sense of you, you sort of respect what athletes manage to achieve. Well, that hasn't changed ever. In the ancient world, like today, athletics, sports are still, were, were, were central to their identity. It was a, a central part of their entertainment. But in Corinth, it was particularly pertinent for them because they actually hosted one of the most, one of the uh, premier athletic festivals of the Greek world. So in the Greek world, there's four major games. There's the one that we know about today, which is the Olympics. Then you have the Nemean Games. Then you have the Delphic Games. And then the fourth one was the Isthmian Games. So these were the four premier events in the Greek cycle, in the Greek world. And Corinth happened to be the city that hosted the Isthmian Games. It's like seven kilometers away, it's a five minute drive today. If you, you still go and see, I'm gonna show you photos in a moment. So they knew athletics, they, they knew what this was about. In fact, it's very likely that when Paul was there in Corinth, these games were being hosted, he would have participated in them. In fact, you know, being a tent maker, that's a handy trade to have when you've got people from all over the world coming looking for accommodation, when there's no hotels, where do you stay? In a tent. Good place to be making, doing your business as, as a tent maker. So they knew about these sports. And so Paul draws on that knowledge, on that understanding, and he says, well, that's kind of how you need to approach your Christian life. That's how you need to approach your pursuit of your calling. So this is in verse 24. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. So I'm gonna bring up this picture for me. This is the starting line of the running track in Isthmia. By the way, I run a New Testament trip to Isthmia amongst other places. We're doing that in October. So if you wanna come, there are places available. Come and talk to me because it's a great trip. So this is the starting line and you go, what the heck is, are those posts? Well, I'm glad you asked. What they are, are the starting blocks. So each of those posts, you've got to see the posts that are fixed in the ground, and they're all attached to a, secondary, to a second post. And that post that's attached to it is loose, it's sort of attached to a rope. The way that it works is, you'd have a starter behind uh, all of these posts with rope. And each piece of rope was attached to that piece of wood. And when he pulled the rope, the, these bits of wood would sort of get pulled up like bales on cricket stumps. And he would just hold them up there, and he, all the runners would stand behind the post and ready, set, go, let go of the ropes, post drop, and away you go. Pretty clever, but that's, that's how they did it. So they understood the running analogy. 
uh, that was always a premier event. And like it is today, if you think about the Olympics, you know, there's heaps of events at the Olympics, but the one event that everyone, or at least the person related to the event that you know about, is always the person that wins the 100 meter. How many of you know Usain Bolt? You've heard of that name, of course you have. But you wouldn't know any other Olympian gold medal unless you're hardcore into the Olympics. No, you're not really gonna know it because that's the celebrity sport. So everyone knows the running event. So Paul says it's a bit like that. Now the other sort of element to this is the culture of the ancient world. We call the ancient world or the culture of the ancient world an agonistic culture. That word agonistic, it comes from the Greek word agon, which translates as competition. It's where we get a word agony from. So the agon was the games, it was the competition, it was the events here. But this idea, this agonistic culture, it reflected into every part of your life. Let me put it to a different way. In the ancient world, you don't get participation trophies. <laughs> you don't get a prize just for turning up. You only get the prize if you win. Everybody else, who cares? It would be funny, if you took someone from 2,000 years ago and put them here in the 21st century, and you said, you know, what, they're watching the Olympics, and they go, what's that silver thing you just gave that person? Oh, that's the, that's the award they get for coming in second. You go, you give them an award for being the first loser? What, what is that? Or you don't, that doesn't compute. So it was win or nothing at all. And this starts from school. In school, you don't have exams. You have competitions. So at the end of every week, you compete with your class, and if you win, you're the student of the week next week. And then next week, you have a competition again. So there's no exams, it's just who's the best. And then we celebrate the person that's the best. Oh, that crushes your poor little spirit? I'm sorry, go away. You have no place in this society. You will die by the wayside. So in this culture, it's all about winning and nothing else. That's it. There's only one place. And so everything you do in every aspect of life, it's about winning. That's it. Paul says, if you're pursuing your calling, you have to pursue it like that. You have to pursue it as though there's a hundred other people going for it, and only one person can get it. And you go, hang on, that metaphor doesn't really work because our callings are unique. I have a calling which isn't your calling, so why are you competing for my calling? Well, Paul says, it's not that everyone's competing for what you're doing, but if you're going for it, don't just assume it's gonna come. You have gotta run for this thing as though everyone else is trying to get it as well. So you've got to fight for this thing. You've got to work for this thing as though there's absolutely nothing else to live for. That's your starting point. He goes on, everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. There's the word there, agonizomai. So to literally compete is to agonize. It's not meant to be easy. It's actually meant to be a struggle. And he says, goes into strict training, literally, he says, exercises self-control. There's only one other time he uses that word in the whole New Testament, and that's in 1 Corinthians 7, and the context is hilarious. It's where he says to all the young people, if you guys can't you know, keep it apart, 
You know, you can't exercise any sexual restraint. Just get married. Okay, better to do that than burn with passion. It's the only other time he uses this word. He says, that's how we need to pursue our calling. We need to do it with absolute restraint, with absolute discipline and self-control. In fact, one of the four cardinal virtues of the ancient world was self-control. Wisdom, courage, uh, temperance, self-control, and moderation. I think it's the other one. He says, everyone who achieves anything has to exercise discipline. They have to exercise self-control. Here's a paradoxical thought. Discipline equals freedom. Discipline equals freedom. But you go, hang on a second. Freedom means I can do whatever I want. That's the wrong understanding of freedom. Think about it like this. If you apply discipline to your finances, you have the freedom and have free leftover money to do with whatever you please. If you have the discipline to get up early, you have more free time to do the things that you want. Think about it in terms of our more base desires. If you exercise discipline in matters of alcohol, you're freed from the burden of alcoholism, from the bondages of alcoholism. In matters of sex, in matters of or money or food or exercise, health, when you exercise discipline in those areas, you actually free yourself from the addictions and the bondages that those things create. That's true freedom. When it comes to the things of God, if you're going to choose to pursue the calling of God in your life, it comes at the cost of absolutely everything else. You can't do anything else. That's it. Now, you could freely choose to do whatever you want with your life. You have that autonomy. But you can't do all of that and the calling of God. It doesn't work. It's all or nothing. And unfortunately, I think so many Christians are in a situation where they've put themselves into a financial constraints, financial burdens, financial debts, or perhaps they've committed their time to so many things that they want to pursue God, but they can't because they're bound by all these other things. It actually takes discipline to push all that aside, to take that off your life, to be able to have the freedom to pursue the things that God has for you. Paul says the only way you can do this calling is to exercise discipline. I'm sorry, I should have brought this next picture up. This is the gymnasium in Sardis. Every major city would have had one of these gymnasiums. This is where you literally do your education. So from a youngest age, you would go to school and what you're learning there is discipline. This has been drilled into you from the youngest age. Now, at the front of that building is the exercise ground. And so what you have to imagine there is, well, the word gymnasium comes from the Greek word gymnos, which means naked. Because when you do your exercise and you compete in these games, you're actually naked. That's part of the whole experience. Covered in olive oil and glistening in the sun and, and doing your exercise. So if, you, if you're picturing this in the first century, you actually have to imagine it with a whole lot of teenage boys completely naked, wrestling with each other. Actually, maybe don't think about that. 
Maybe just, yeah, let's, let's just leave that one aside. But Christianity as in life requires discipline. It's one of those dirty words these days where we just want to do it. No, it doesn't work that way. It actually requires some self-control. He moves on. He says, they do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. I love this picture. Bring up the next one for me. This is again in Isthmia. This is an inscription of this particular person and the, the, the prizes that they've won. So when you win at the games, you win a crown. That's your award for winning the event. Now, the thing about the games is that those four games that I mentioned all had their own particular type of crown. Now, here's the crazy part. These crowns are made of plants. So if you won the crown at the Olympic Games, you actually win a crown made of an olive branch. So it's literally like, there's an olive tree, go cut a branch off, quickly make it a crown. Congratulations, you won. Well, thanks for nothing. But here's the fun one. If you win at Isthmia, you win a crown made of celery. I'm not even kidding. You can take this crown home and use it to garnish your dinner. <laughs> celery. It's kind of like if you won at the Olympics today and you look down and you're holding your gold medal and you realize it's chocolate covered in foil. <laughs> you're like, well, that was a waste of my life. But the point isn't the award. The crown is going to perish. But for these athletes, what it meant for them was the glory of being the winner. Because when you go back to your city, you are the celebrity. You are the person, the man. You would have the keys to the city. You would have all of the most elite fathers saying, marry my daughter. Any privileges, any opportunities, they come to you because you brought the glory back to the city of being the winner of the games. Paul says these athletes spend their whole lives striving for a crown that perishes. We strive for a crown that will last forever. And so the thing about this life is that we can pursue things for this life. Things that will bring us glory in this life. Wealth, success, fame, fortune, all of those things. And they're not bad things. But they all die with us in the grave. Paul says we need to strive for the things that will last forever. We need to strive for the glory that comes when we hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into your inheritance. That's the true crown. And that's the one that keeps us in the fight. Because the thing about that one is that we never get it in this life. If it's all about a crown for this life, you can get it in 10 years and sit back in your laurels and go, I've got nothing else to do. God says, my calling never finishes. This one carries to the day you die. It's only then that you get the award. So you can't stop. You have to keep striving for this. You have to keep pushing for this. And so he says, for that reason, therefore I do not run like someone running aimlessly, literally without uncertainty or without a fixed goal. He says, I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. 
This is another one, another raining track in Epidavros. I would have put up Isthmia, but the track there is not very good. Different kind of thing, but you can see the point. It's a, it's a simple raining track with a different sort of setup there for the starters blocks. But it's a pretty straightforward idea, isn't it? Start at one end and run to the other end. It's kind of how the whole race works. Now, here's a little thing I've noticed about life. Life on the whole is exhausting. Even when you're lazy, it's still exhausting. In fact, the laziness only compounds the exhaustion because you're too lazy to do anything and then you've got no energy even when you want to do something to actually get out of bed to do the thing you want to do. So you're just always exhausted. Or you can get up and do something and it's exhausting. But there's a difference at that point. You can exhaust yourself running around in circles or as Paul says, shadow boxing. Just exhausting yourself, punching the air. Or you can put in front of yourself a target, a finish line. You'll be exhausted at the other end, but at the end, you've achieved something. What is it you're trying to achieve? Well, obviously, it's your calling. What has God set in front of you as the target? What are you running towards? Because otherwise, you're just running in circles. And eventually, you're going to run out of breath, and you're going to collapse and go, I've done nothing but run in circles, and I've got nowhere. What was it all for? We call those midlife crises. Finally, he says, he says, no, I'll strike a blow to my body. Literally, I'll punish myself and make it my slave so that after I've preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. One of the most popular sports, apart from the running, was a sport called the pancration. Now, they had boxing in the ancient world, so just standard boxing, or they had wrestling as well. But they had another sport where they combined the two. We call it today MMA. <laughs> this was the most popular because anything went. And it was so popular, in fact, that they have, these are literally vases that people would have in their houses of these pancratiasts. I mean, imagine like a blood-stained MMA fighter on your dinner dishes. You finish dinner and there's this guy with his broken, bleeding face and looking back at you, like, that's disturbing. But for the Greeks, this is the epitome of competition. And so here we've got, well, we've got a guy getting kicked. If you want to jump to the next one. Here we've got some people wrestling. Now, actually, they're a little bit out of order. Can you just skip through all five of them and just come back? So there's a sort of a boxing stance. That's a nice one. Here we've got a guy just in a sort of a wrestling pose. Okay, come back to the second one. There's only two rules in this. There's only two things you couldn't do. The first one, if you want to come back to the second one, one before that, you couldn't bite like this guy is. Now, no, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Actually, this is the other good one too. You can't eye gouge like this guy is. See that dude back there with his arm raised? He's the judge and he's got a big stick. And what he's about to do is absolutely belt the guy who's just eye gouged the other one. And you wanna skip forward to the last one. The other thing you can't do is bite. And there's the stick. It looks like a piece of grass. Doesn't seem like it's gonna do much, but you get the point. See, what happens to those guys? They get disqualified. See, they're in the fight, but there's rules. You break those rules, you get disqualified. You're out. See, what the ancient philosophers realized is that 
these bodies of ours serve a purpose, and the purpose is to move us towards a place of virtue. That's the goal for, that they recognized on everyone. You needed to become virtuous, and the point of the body is to get you to that place of virtuousness. The problem with a body is that it kind of has a brain of its own. It kind of wants you to do things that satisfy it. Lusts, desires, addictions, pleasures, and the problem they recognize with people is that we're constantly led astray by our desires. And the only way to overcome that is to discipline our bodies, is to punish them. Not self-flagellation, but put a, a, a discipline on our life so that our bodies become vessels to take us to the bigger calling, which in their case was virtue. Paul says it's the same thing with us. We have these bodies that are constantly being tempted to all sorts of desire. What we have to do is to deal with that desire, literally discipline ourselves to pursue our calling. So Paul says, I do this to myself every day. I discipline my desires. I push them aside. Why? So that I don't get disqualified having preached the gospel. And you go, how does that work? Paul says, it's very easy. He says, says to the Philippians, he says also um, uh, earlier on to the Corinthians, he says, there's plenty of preachers out there who are just preaching for their own desire. They're preaching for their own glory, for their own fame. They're preaching for their own sense of self-worth. And he says, look, great, the message is being preached. That's good news. But they themselves aren't gonna gain anything from it. They don't get the prize because it's always just about them. The gospel went out, but they're gonna get disqualified from the race. Paul says, I'm pursuing my calling, but the secret to doing that is to discipline all these other things, all these other temptations. Why? So that I can be freed to pursue that for which God has called me. So what's the lesson? If you wanna band, if you wanna come back. Where do we bring this back to where we find ourselves? This cause, this calling, that God has for each of us, it's our whole life. There's no break from it. It's what God put us here for. And it takes everything. It will cost everything. And at every point, there'll be distraction, there'll be temptation, there'll be all of these things that wanna just take us off course, that wanna disqualify us from the race. Paul says, we need to resist that. We need to discipline ourselves against that. So that when we do stand before him, before we stand in eternity, and he gives us those words, well done, good and faithful servant. Father, thank you for your calling. Thank you for your cause. It's not even about us. It's not for us, it's for you. You've called all of us to this. And God, what we realize is that it's not a few moments in our life where we just sort of think about it. No, it's, it's every single day. It's everything that we do. It's what you're 
pulling us towards. So again, today we're just reminded of the cost that comes along with that. And what's so amazing about your grace is that you don't put it back on us and say, well, you've got to come up with your own strength to do this. No, no, you actually give us the strength by your spirit to do this. You empower us by your spirit and enable us to do this calling. And so we lean back on your strength. We lean back in your spirit that empowers us to keep moving forward. And so, Father, thank you for that. Thank you for your grace. And thank you for this life, this calling that is so much bigger than us. That's so much more incredible than anything we could have ever come up with for ourselves. So again, today, we just make that decision to pursue that and to continue moving towards you and to that calling that you have. And so we thank you for this in your incredible name. Amen.